Well, it's true. At times, being a parent has its challenges, like trying to get your kids to eat their vegetables or do their homework or stop slouching. But to all the parents here today finding parenting a challenge, spare a thought for British couple Elaine and Alan Bell, whose parenting woes a few years back ended up in an online newspaper for all to see. Let me quote. When Elaine and Alan Bell left for a short Easter break, their home was, as always, in an immaculate condition. Unfortunately, they trusted 17-year-old daughter, Rachel, to keep it that way. The next day, the house-proud parents returned to a scene of utter devastation. In what appears to have been a carefully planned operation, Rachel hosted a party, attended by around 200 teenagers from across the country, while her parents and younger siblings were at the seaside in their caravan. Details of the party on Monday evening were advertised on her MySpace internet site under the heading, Let's Trash the Average Family-Sized House Disco Party. And that's exactly what happened. The partygoers caused around £20,000 of damage, stole cash and jewellery, wrecked clothes, including the mother's wedding dress, and even ripped light fittings out of the ceiling. According to Mrs Bell, her home has been left uninhabitable. Unsurprisingly, the parents are not on speaking terms with their teenage daughter, who has fled what is left of the family nest to stay with friends. Feeling better, parents? I mean, can you imagine? You go away for the weekend, come home and find the whole place trashed. Oh, such contempt, such rebellion. And who could blame these parents for getting upset? No wonder Rachel fled. Well, this world belongs to God. He is the holy and righteous creator of it all. And the Bible says that one day he's going to come back and pay us a visit. And that on that day, his wrath is going to be poured out on those who have rebelled against him, on sinners. Yet on that day, unlike for Rachel, there'll be nowhere to flee. So let me ask, are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared for God's coming? I mean, how do you even prepare for it in the first place? Well, I think today's passage from Luke chapter 3 is actually very helpful as we consider these questions. If you don't already have a Bible open in front of you at Luke chapter 3, let me encourage you to turn with me there now. Luke begins this chapter by listing the names of uh, seven men who at this time have political and economic and religious control over Israel. But in giving, the, in giving these names, I reckon Luke wants to do more than just date these events for us. I reckon he's also showing us the true state of Israel at this time. You see, Tiberius and Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Annas, Caiaphas, etc., these men are all infamous for their wickedness. They're self-serving, power-hungry people, uh, far from the, the godly shepherds who ought to be leading the flock of Israel. And if this is what the rulers are like, well, we can only imagine what the people are like. I guess that we could say, uh, spiritually speaking, Israel was being trashed. 
and God is not happy about it. And it's in this context that God now speaks. But not to any of these wicked men living in their fancy palaces, but rather to a simple, godly man who's made his home in the barren wilderness. A man named John. Here, read with me from Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Idaria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, of course, we've already met John in Luke's gospel, haven't we? He's the son that God promised Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. The one who was to prepare our people to meet their, their Messiah. And now here, in, in today's passage, we see him doing just that. And how is he preparing the people exactly? Well, by calling them to repent. And then baptising them to symbolise that repentance. What does it mean to repent? Well, it it means to recognise that you're going the wrong way and to to turn around, to to chuck a yui, so to speak. You know, when when my son uh, played under sevens rugby, uh, hardly a week would go by without at least one kid running the wrong way with the ball. You know, the ball would fall into his arms and, uh, and his eyes would light up and he'd take off towards the try line with this big grin on his face. Meanwhile, everyone would be on the sidelines screaming, no, no, not that way, not that way, this way, this way. You could always tell who the parent was, they were the ones. Well, in his preaching and baptising, John's like those people on the sideline calling out to the people of Israel, you're going the wrong way. You're heading away from God. Turn back, turn back to him. Repent. See, the Jews know that when the Messiah comes, he'll bring salvation to God's people. But as it stands, these Jews aren't living as God's faithful people. Rather, they're living as God's enemies, scoring tries for the other team, so to speak. And so when the Messiah comes... They should anticipate judgment, not salvation. After all, that's what always happens in the Bible when God personally shows up. He he, he saves his faithful people, but pours out his wrath on his enemies, on the wicked. You might remember it happened uh, at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, God tells Abraham, I am going down to, to see what's happening. God turns up and and he rescues Lot, but pours down fire and brimstone on those wicked cities. It happened in Egypt too, remember? God says to Moses, I have come down to rescue my people. And he does just that. But he also sends the, the plagues on the wicked Egyptians. You see, when God shows up, you can always count on him to save his faithful people but pour out his wrath on the wicked. Well, now, God's Messiah has come. 
And John knows that Israel is totally unprepared for him. They're, they're living for him themselves, not God. And so with great urgency, John calls on the people to repent. Now, just as the prophet Isaiah foretold 700 years earlier, John calls for a, a roadworks of the heart, if you will. You know, where, where mountains are flattened and, and, and where valleys are, are, are raised, where, where roads are, are made straight and smooth. It, it's a picture, you see, of people repenting of their sin, levelling the bumps and, and filling in the potholes on, on the roads of their hearts so that the Messiah can come rolling in to bring salvation. Here, read with me uh, from verse 3. Verse 3. He, that is John, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. And so John calls on the people to turn their hearts back to God and to symbolise that with baptism. Which is really interesting because uh, prior to John, the only kind of baptism around uh, was the one Gentiles went through to convert to Judaism. And so for Jews to get baptised was pretty pretty significant. They were basically saying, I'm a sinner. Uh, no better than the, the godless Gentiles. But today I repent. Today I, I turn back to God and begin my new life of serving him. And the thing is, uh, despite his remote desert location, crowds flocked to John to be baptised. And in the next part of the passage, we, we get to hear him um, open one of his baptism services. What, what do you think he says? Uh, Good morning and welcome to Cactus Presbyterian Church. Uh, my name's John and I'd like to offer a warm CPC welcome to all those getting baptised today. Well, no. Instead, he starts with, you brood of vipers. Can you imagine? You bunch of snakes. Subtle, isn't he? But remarkably, the crowd doesn't respond as we might expect. They don't start booing or throwing tomatoes. They don't dump John in the river and head back home. Why not? Well, I reckon it's because they know he's right. In a moment, we'll discover that this crowd is made up of the likes of tax collectors and, and soldiers, people renowned and despised for their corruption and abuse. So they already know they're sinners deserving of God's wrath. They just don't know what to do about it. And so before he baptises them, John tells them what they need to do. He says they need to repent. And not with the kind of repentance you might see when an unwilling kid apologizes to their sibling you know sorry that's obviously not real 
Now, John's talking about genuine repentance. The kind that grieves over sin and and hates it like God does. The kind of repentance that changes your behaviour so you, you start living for God and not yourself. So it's not enough for these Jews to rely on their genetic connection to Abraham to save them when the Messiah comes. No, they need to be connected to God through, through faith and obedience. If they're not, John warns, they're going to get cut down and burned up like, like a fruitless tree in an orchard. In fact, John says God's, God's axe is already swinging towards their trunk. And of course, this alarming image, it stirs, stirs everyone up and gets them wondering, well, what will genuine repentance look like for me in my life in, in real practical terms? And so they ask John and, and he tells them, he says, if, you, if you've got two shirts, then share one of them with someone who's got none. In other words, show compassion and be generous, not, not greedy which then prompts the tax collectors to ask, what about us? And John replies, stop ripping people off. Be honest in all your dealings. And then some of the soldiers, they ask the same question. And John tells them to to stop the corruption and bribery and to be content with their wages. It's actually pretty basic stuff, isn't it? Nothing too complicated. I guess you could summarise John's commands as stop living for yourself and start loving your neighbour as God commands. Here, read with me from verse 7. Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And so John calls on the people to prepare for the Messiah by repenting of their sins and then proving it by changing their behaviour. Obviously, John's sermons are powerful and they leave many in the crowd wondering whether John may actually be the long-awaited Messiah. But John is very quick to, to quash that rumour, saying, look, guys, <laughs> I'm not the Messiah. In fact, you know what? He is so far above me, I am not even worthy to be his lowest servant. Because here's the thing. I am here today baptising you with water. 
And in an hour or two, you'll be dry again. But when the Messiah comes, he is going to baptise you with either the Holy Spirit or with fire, with eternal life or eternal destruction. John goes on to say that the Messiah, he will be like a farmer, uh, separating the grain of wheat from the useless husk or or chaff, uh, using a winnowing fork or pitchfork to toss the mix into the air, allowing the wind to take the chaff away whilst the heavier grain falls straight back down. And what happens to the good grain? Well, it gets stored in the barn, but the chaff... It's burned up in a fire that never goes out. Can you see what John's saying? He's talking about heaven and hell, isn't he? That's why it's so important that these people get prepared and ASAP. Because the winnowing fork is already in Farmer Jesus' hand. Judgment is imminent. Here, read with me from verse 15. Verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Pretty heavy stuff, hey? But you know, it it is exactly what the people need to hear if they're to be ready to meet the Messiah. And the reason it's good news is because John doesn't just give the scary diagnosis. He gives the hope of a cure too, forgiveness, as they turn to God in repentance and faith. And it seems that on the whole, the crowds responded humbly to the message John brings. But that's not to say that everyone in Israel appreciates John's call to repentance You'll remember Herod is one of the seven leaders listed in the beginning of today's passage. Uh, He's a local Jewish leader in cahoots with the Roman government. Uh, Not not to be confused with his father, Herod the Great, uh, who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem 30 years prior. Though it is fair to say that this Herod is just as great as his dad. Early in his reign, he, uh, he marries a woman named Aratus. Uh, But on a visit to Rome, Herod stays with his half-brother Philip, who's married to Herodias. Herod and Herodias fall in love, divorce their spouses, then marry one another. It is wicked, godless behaviour. And so John courageously calls on Herod to repent. And what is Herod's response? Is it, you're right. Take me to the river, John. Does he join with the tax collectors and soldiers in asking, and what about me? What should I do, John? Tell me. 
Now, rather than take to heart John's message, Herod tries to silence the messenger by locking John up in prison. Here, read with me these final verses from verse 19. Verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Herod makes his choice, doesn't he? He hears the call to repent, to turn from his sins to God, but instead of repenting, he hardens his heart. And with that unhappy thought, we come to the end of today's passage. So what have we seen? Well, the arrival of the Messiah means that soon God will bring both salvation and judgment. But the people of Israel are totally unprepared. As it is, they're going to cop it. And so through John, God God calls on Israel to repent, to turn their hearts back to him, and to produce the fruit of repentance as they wait for God to save his people and punish his enemies. Yet when uh, Jesus does step forward, as he's just about to do, I think it's fair to say that he's not, he's not quite the Messiah many are expecting. Uh, many people think that he'll rescue them, of course, from their Roman oppressors, perhaps uh, visiting their evil overlords with spectacular plagues or fire and brimstone from heaven. But God has a different kind of salvation in mind. For one Friday afternoon, just three years later, the sky turns black. And God does pour out his wrath on sin. But not on sinners. Instead, he pours it out on the Messiah himself, on Jesus, as he hangs nailed to a cross. Though his heart has never turned from God, not not, not even once, though he is completely innocent, the acts of God's wrath cuts him down. The pitchfork of God's judgment tosses him into the fire, so to speak. But it's in this most unexpected way that Jesus also brings God's salvation. Because on the cross, God bears the sins of the whole world so that those who turn to him in repentance and faith might receive from him a place in in the barn that is heaven forever. And to whom is this wonderful offer of salvation now made? Well, it's made to all people everywhere. To all who will repent and look to Jesus for forgiveness. As Jesus himself later explains to his disciples. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into the world to save us from our sin. That was his first coming. But one day, he'll come again to execute his final judgment. And on that day, there'll be just two types of people, the repentant and the unrepentant, the forgiven and the condemned. 
And so let me ask, friend, are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come back and judge the world? Are you ready for him to judge you? What do you need to do to get ready? Well, I think today's passage makes it clear. You need to repent and be forgiven. And then you need to live for Jesus. Firstly, you need to repent and be forgiven. See, friend, simple fact is, if you or I were standing in the crowd that day on the bank of the Jordan River, I doubt very much that John would have stood up and declared, you brood of vipers. Present company excluded, of course. No, we've all sinned. We've all sinned against God in thought, word and deed. Every one of us. We've all rebelled against him. And like Rachel Bell and her parents, our relationship with God has been broken. But do you see, the the, the very fact that we are called to repentance is actually really very good news. Why? Because it means it's not too late. That there is still something to be done, time to turn around. What we don't want to do is be like Herod, in effect, plugging our ears and go, drowning out God's call to repentance. Because I can assure you that Herod's choice is one that he will regret for all eternity. Friend, don't end up where he is. Please, don't stubbornly persist in your sin. Turn from it. Turn to Jesus today in repentance and faith. Because when you do, God will forgive you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. The the, the tax collectors, the, the soldiers, they were considered the scum of Israel. But when they asked John, what about us? He doesn't reply, oh, no, 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 no. This doesn't apply to you. You're, you're way too far gone. Now, John knows that salvation is available, available to all who repent and look to the, to, the, to the Messiah. And that includes you and me. It's good news for every one of us. Though we were once God's enemies, locked out of his heavenly home, he now throws open, open its pearly gates to us. And as though that weren't enough, he even gives us himself, his Holy Spirit, to live in us and be with us until we see him face to face. Such amazing love, such amazing grace. So friend, repent, receive forgiveness and be saved. And once you have, how should you respond to this great salvation? Well, as we've seen today, genuine repentance will always lead to a changed life. If um, Rachel Bell said sorry to her parents and then they let her come back home, uh, we, we would expect her to act differently the next time they went away for the weekend, right? But if she starts planning her next destructive bash 
as soon as they pull out of the driveway, I reckon we'd probably question her repentance, right? Because genuine repentance will always lead to a changed life. So what will genuine repentance look like in your life, do you think? What will it look like in in real practical terms for you to to stop living for yourself and, and start living for God? Well, let's think about it for a moment. Imagine with me. Imagine... We're transported back to the banks of the Jordan River with the prophet John before us. And imagine if, after the tax collectors and the soldiers, you put up your hand and ask, and John, what about me? What should I do? What do you reckon he would have to say to you? Well, the one thing I know he wouldn't say to me is, If you've got two shirts, give one away. This is it. But seriously, seriously, I do suspect I know what he might have to say to me. What do you reckon he might say to you? Would it be stop messing around with that person you're not married to, whether in real life or online? Instead, be faithful and pure in all your relationships? Or would he perhaps say, stop living to just pile up wealth in this life, rather invest in God's kingdom that will last forever? Or would he perhaps say, stop with the, the harsh, critical words to your kids, your spouse, your workmates. Instead, use your words to build up and encourage. Or maybe he would look at you and say, stop letting your studies or your job or or entertainment crowd out uh, prayer and and your study of God's word. Uh, Make God number one. What do you reckon? What do you think? What would God say to you through John? I know what he would say to me, think. What would he say to you? Of course, it's not like God's waiting for us to clean up our lives before he'll forgive us. No, he's, he's already done that at the cross. But genuine repentance will always produce a changed life. So friends, with God's help, let's turn from our sin today. Let's Let's let the Holy Spirit bulldoze our mountains and and fill our valleys. Let's make our heart roads ready for the day of Jesus' return. And as we do, let's look forward with confidence and joy to seeing our beloved Saviour face to face. Let's pray. Well, Father, you are the holy and righteous God And we come before you humbled and sorrowful, aware of our sin and ready to repent. Thank you for not abandoning us to hell, but sending Jesus to save us at the cross. We take hold of that salvation now, Father. We look to Jesus and the forgiveness he offers. 
And we ask you, Lord, to give us the strength to turn from our sin, that we might live lives that are holy and pleasing to you as we await our Saviour's return. In his great name we pray. Amen.